I, you know, I, I think particularly, about, you know, in these times where we're seeing so much polarization, my hope is that we find ways to celebrate diversity and be like, like your podcast. How does it look from here? Be really curious about how it looks from somewhere else. But then also in that conversation, figure out what we have in common. What do we have in common? What do we share as I celebrate how you're different and how the challenges you're facing are different, the opportunities you're facing are different? What do we have in common? How can we work together to make the world a better place, to make our food systems more sustainable so we can feed ourselves in an uncertain future? tuned in to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, How It Looks matters. So we offer these interviews as a way of giving us all new ideas and inspirations for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'll be talking with Susan Bragdon, the executive director and founder of Seeds for All, an organization devoted to global food security. Most immediately, Seeds for All aids and expands agroecology, and regenerative agriculture by supporting the voices and participation of small-scale farmers and by building democratic, participatory, and inclusive governance at all levels. Susan is an international lawyer, natural resource ecologist, and U.S. patent agent with more than 25 years of experience working with governments and United Nations agencies toward deliberate, systemic, institutional, and policy change in support of agriculture that nourishes both people and the planet. Okay, so I'll start and, and with um, something like this. Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Susan. It's so good to see you and to have you here for this conversation. It's great to be here and an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, you're so welcome. Uh, we've worked on getting this together, and I'm so glad for myself and for the listeners that we're, we're able to pull this off. I know that you live in Portland, Oregon, one of my favorite places and a real home for me, actually. Um, but you, you have a view on the whole planet, and I know that you have a recent article in the American University International Law Review, and in that you wrote that small-scale farmers and agricultural biodiversity have a critical yet often overlooked role in healthy, nutritious diets and ensuring the resilience of agricultural production systems in the face of climate change. So you really bring a lot of things together there, not the least of which is historically marginalized groups. What is the displacement of small-scale farmers, and how is it linked to biological diversity, and how are both of them linked to climate change? That's a big question. So just go <laughs> and, and let us hear from you. All right. I'll try to break it down. Um, we have about 1.5 billion small-scale farmers 
in the world. And depending on what region you're in, they're producing anywhere from 50 to almost 100% of the food that's consumed. And I think most people, particularly the further away we are from our food producers, we don't actually know that. And if we live in America, we don't, we're likely not to know about these small-scale producers. They are starting to make a comeback in places like Vermont and Oregon, but it's returning to that. Where These are places where small-scale farming, that's the norm. And these people are at the front lines of climate change. They're managing agrobiodiversity, and that means genetic diversity, the diversity within crops, diversity between crops, but also different agroecosystems. So it's at all those levels. And so we have one, climate change, which is being enormously impacted by industrial agriculture, which is very, very different from these agroecological practices of small-scale farmers in agrobiodiverse situations. And the people most at risk from climate change from industrial agriculture and other kinds of emissions are small-scale farmers. It makes their farming more difficult. Um, and they are, again, they're the ones at the front lines of, of, of climate change and other kinds of stressors, including pandemics. But the irony is they're also the solution. Without having diversity to breed with, we don't, we, we won't, we'll be unable to adapt and create new varieties that are able to respond to stressors. We can saw, you know, store some of those seeds in gene banks, which is a fancy word for freezers, but those are all a snapshot in time. They're a tiny fraction of the genetic resources that are actually being conserved and managed and developed in situ on farm by these small scale farmers. So we need what they're doing, not only for the traits that we might want for the, in, and the breeding, the, the source for breeding, but all sorts of ecological processes from water cycling, nutrients, soil fertility, pollination, seed dispersal, to a greater or lesser extent, all rely on agricultural biodiversity. So if you displace smallholder farmers, you displace their knowledge and their management practices, and you erode the biological diversity, you're literally seeing the end of agricultural production and our ability to feed ourselves. So they are critical. When you speak of small-scale farmers, are you speaking not just of the people who do this work, but of the kind of in, in intellectual ancestry and practice ancestry that they bring with them, and that, that those practices, those farming practices, are more consistent with one of the things that I, I, we think in terms of in full ecology is stewarding or, or being present, being right-sized as human beings on the land, mm -hmm. rather than dominion over and making the land work the way that we want it to. Well, exactly. This is, I think, a, a perfect point, right-sized and also part of, part of. not So it's, it's stewardship, yes, but not dominion over. It's work, working with you know, so working with the land and the soil and pollinators. And so it's, it's again, it's a diverse system in, in many ways. And yes, I think you're very much correct. This is, these are systems that have been going on for thousands of years. You know, the dawn of agriculture, 10, 12,000 years ago, industrial agriculture emerged after World War II. It's a very new experiment in the way to produce food. And it's had a lot of, you know, it's doing a lot of damage to human health and to planetary health. So yes, it's these traditional farming practices, but I think it's really important to emphasize that traditional doesn't mean static. These are people that are and communities that are innovating and innovating in, in, in the face of change. They're 
farmer breeders. They're doing, you know, innovating with their management practices. They can't be static because things aren't static. The environment they live in isn't static. You know, whether that's a political environment or the environment ecologically, they have to be innovative. They have to be able to adapt. But they are bringing in, you know, a wealth of knowledge from their traditions. So we call it traditional knowledge, but sometimes. I'm concerned when people say that, they'll think it's static, it doesn't change. That that would be an incorrect characterization of... Yeah, and so um, you are alluding to, it seems to me, the kind of natural process. I don't know, I don't think we put this as one of the, the eight master lessons in Gary's book, The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, and that's improv. And really, and we do talk of connection, and we do talk of efficiency, but when it comes down to it, every tree, every mushroom, every fungus, every squirrel, every day is in improv every morning, every and all day through. And so it seems like you're indicating that these agricultural practices, it's, it's, an, it's an improv that's based on this inheritance of understanding, but it's also quite artistic is that is that part of what makes agriculture regenerative yes i think that that is correct that it's it's you know yes i understand what this particular variety does it it, it withstands drought a little bit better uh, but oh this year it's flooding i mean it's, and that can be also with management practices but you know how they mix crops uh, how do they respond when a, a new pest comes along um, so yeah, again, it, it, it's taking what you know, but also being able to think, be innovative. What, what, what else do I need to do? And to be an experimenter. And, and that's what these, you know, that's what we want. And that's what these communities historically have been. And we want to support that kind of innovation and, and stewardship. And so how is this good for the environment? Well, it's good for the environment for, you know, one, again, it, it's all about climate resilience and cu- climate adaptation. But again, it's supporting all these ecological processes. And the other thing is, it's really critical to the health of people. I mean, if you have a diet, if you have a diet that is high in highly processed foods, or just is simplified, which is what's been happening, you know, since the 1900s, we have been, you know, our diets have been simplifying, particularly if you're poor, and your diet will have more high processed foods, which are, are cheap. So there's been a trend, which we call the homogenization, I always say this word wrong, homogenization of the food supply. And so with trade, if you're a wealthy person, you might be getting a kiwi out of season, or you might have seen a kiwi for the first time. But if you're poor, you're not going to be able to afford a kiwi. What you're going to be able to afford is a cheap donut or a cheap, you know, highly processed um, product. So there are all sorts of forces that are, are, are driving our food system in, in a bad direction in terms of health. And, but dietary diversity starts with the diversity of what we grow and making sure it's available and affordable. And so those are, those are the things that, again, smallholder farmers are really important in terms of supplying diverse, nutrient-dense foods. And it is really locally sourced food. So there's a whole lot and and food that is is produced that doesn't uh, deplete the soil. Am I correct in that? Right, right. I mean, that's again an agroecological approach, and the center again of that is agricultural biodiversity is correlated with healthy soils. And so, when you talk about agricultural biodiversity, it's also the diversity in the soil. It's not necessarily something you eat. 
And also, if you look at climate change, I mean, CO2 can actually cause crops to grow faster, um, but at, at an environmental cost. But what a lot of people don't know is it increases the carbohydrate content of the crop, and it also decreases the nutrient and mineral value in that crop. So it becomes a less healthy crop. Yeah. You know, you, you work with policy. And I'm wondering, I do want to know what that means, but I want to know, as you look back at your childhood and youth, what do you see that makes you think, oh, no wonder I became a lawyer and I'm working in food security? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I think that's a good question. I'm a a lawyer and I also am a resource ecologist. So I I both studied science and law. And so part of what drove me into my field, I worked for a while in science, but scientists didn't really seem to understand. And I think we do a better job now, but it, you know. Part of it is I wanted to be able to speak both languages when I moved into this field. But I think my direction, I mean, I started mostly being interested sort of in the conservation of biological diversity. And as a child and as a a young professional, I I really identified with wild biological diversity. So my first job was actually working with the United Nations Environment Program in Nairobi, Kenya. And it was on negotiating a treaty for the conservation of biological diversity, very much focused on wild biodiversity and and not really anything to do with food or agriculture. But here I was living in a country that was hungry. There were slums all around the city. And I just started to think, we also have to, if we don't feed people and do so in a sustainable way, there none of this other stuff is going to matter. And as I learned more about biodiversity in a larger sense, I started to learn about the importance of agricultural biodiversity, learn about the importance of the people managing it and realizing there's very few parts of our planet that aren't touched by humans. So we better figure out how humans can live better <laughs> within nature and within agroecosystems. So I made a leap from working on sort of from the United Nations Environment Program to looking at agricultural biodiversity and food systems. Well, and then that, I'm curious about that just a little bit. What happened way back there in your first experiences or what that's just kind of surprised you? Do you remember a story of something that just caught your attention and you went, whoa? It was, I think it wasn't so much a, a particular person, but it was more an institutional thing. So in the negotiations for the Convention on Biological Diversity, they, you literally had people from ministries of environment negotiating an instrument that was going to deal with all sorts of diversity, including agricultural biodiversity. And then you had people from the Food and Agriculture Organization coming in. And there was just this, we're environmentalists, you're agricultural people. And I just thought, we cannot operate like this. If we can't figure out, you know, talk together, we can't live in these kinds of silos. And I just think it, it was shocking to me. There was institutional rivalry and intellectual rivalry and and I, I, it made no sense to me. I mean, we're one world. <laughs> yeah, this was back way. Yeah, that was in the 1990s. That you were seeing this this siloed thing and going, this can't happen. How are we doing? Have we made any progress? How is it going? I think we're still. I mean, it's it's a bit better, but I I think there's still still a lot of a lot of silos and and misunderstanding. There's a whole debate about land sparing and agricultural intensification, which I think also just blurs the issues with how do we how do we farm in sustainable, ecologically friendly ways mm-hmm. where we are 
promoting wildlife and wildlife quarters where pollinators are able to live and survive, where the soil is healthy. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's still, you know, even there, we have the, the, the UN in, in New York adopted sustainable development goals and there's 17 of them and they're all supposed to be integrated and, op, you know, and, but they're evaluated separately year by year. And when they looked at uh, sustainable development goal 15, which is life on land, they get, you know, the UN gathers expert groups. They were people from World Wildlife Front, from the IUCN. And even these organizations have... What is that, IUCN? Uh, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Okay. So they were, they were the organizations that they brought from civil society tended to have an environmental background. Uh-huh. And, and those organizations themselves are getting much better about understanding food systems. But it was, again, the bias was pr- quite clear. And in the report that came out and when the the UN evaluated this, how are we doing on achieving sustainable development goal 15, there were reference to climate change to the, you know, other sustainable development goals that they thought were relevant, but no reference to the sustainable development goal two, which was on hunger, Mm -hmm. which also talks about genetic diversity. Mm -hmm. Why aren't you mentioning that when you're talking about life on land? Life on land includes growing food and, you know, doing it in a way within planetary boundaries and within what, you know, the sustainable development goal 15 was all about. So, you know, so one step forward, you know, it's, it's, we make some progress, but it's slower than I think most of us would like. Well, yes. And, and talk to me about your experience with actually listening to and ensuring the presence of the voices of small scale farmers in these conversations. I'd love for you to like, Talk about how you and your organization can link those voices to have an impact on or even help an articulation of policy. How does that work? Because the gap seems enormous. Yes, and I have to say it's also, I think, been exacerbated with, with the pandemic because a lot of negotiations actually went online. And going online, we have a digital divide in this world. Sure. So it was a further disenfranchisement of social movements, you know, indigenous peoples uh, and civil society. If you had access and even more, if you were on a European time zone, <laughs> you know, it, so I think we had a real problem and, and you know, I, some of that couldn't be helped, but some of that I think was sort of taken advantage of by more powerful interests. But a lot of it is pretty simple. There needs to be funding to get people you know, that don't have resources. If you want their voices heard, they need to be at the table. If they're not at the table, because a lot happens in the corridors. It's it's not just at the negotiating table, Mm -hmm. it's around those negotiations. So if you're not there, your voice isn't going to be heard. So it's not good enough to send an aggregator. You actually need to be, have representatives of those communities and there need to be resources set aside to do that. So we need to convince our governments to do that. We need to you know, have the budgets of our intergovernmental agencies have funding to actually get people there. Um, some of the work I've done in the past also is tr- trying is bringing together smallholder farmers from different places to c- develop common positions. So that the World Intellectual Property Organization was negotiating uh, an instrument on folklore, traditional knowledge, and genetic resources. So we, I was working actually with a Quaker organization at the time. We brought smallholder farmers from around the world developed sort of common positions and then actually worked on sort of 
educating about negotiations for those who'd never been to let them understand what it would be like. And it was really wonderful when we were sitting there during the negotiations to, you know, see a flat, you know, they raise their flag to speak. And it was just, you know, farmers from different perspectives, different governments, different agroecosystems, all sorts of things, but all supporting very common themes and principles. So both the beauty is respecting the diversity you know, and like your whole podcast is, what's your view from here? These these were farmers so curious about what's your view on this and seeing what was different, learning from each other, but also, wow, how much do we have in common? And from across the world. And from across the world. And also one point also brought in, we had a smallholder farmers also from Europe who were actually very surprised to hear the constraints that smallholder farmers, you know, felt in other countries that they don't face in their countries. And I'm not talking about financial constraints, which are real, that a Norwegian farmer is going to have more finances at his or her disposal. But it's actually policy constraints. What a you know EU country or an American farmer can do from a policy perspective is very different from what a developing country uh, can do because developing countries have been constrained by trade rules in a way that developed countries are not. This is Mary Claire and How It Looks From Here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. You said that that your organization has been able to bring uh, small scale farmers together to listen to each other. Is there any going out and listening to the people in their communities and on their land? Oh, yes, absolutely. Again, I mean, it's Seeds for All has done this in partnership with others. So one one of our partners is, is Oxfam Novib out of the Netherlands. So that's very much going out, you know, to the communities. And so not only have it make, again, trying to make sure that these communities can share knowledge and experience on the ground in terms of practices, um, but also so, yeah, just to, to create more understanding and also influence in, in their national policy arena. How do you raise awareness? And again, trying to bring you know, different stakeholders together from the farmers to people who work in nutrition, to people who are charged with climate change. So you have government officials, you have, and that kind of um, dialogue and, and increased understanding is a really important part. And also I've been involved with different sort of different technical advisory committees on, on projects that are multi-country and definitely going out and listening, uh, listening to farmers. But I also think it's this peer-to-peer exchange, that's that's the most important thing. Yeah, say more about that. I mean, that's what you were you made you helped happen. Yeah, I just again, it's I, I think that there are common challenges that that smallholder farmers face, and that they can really learn how did you overcome that? What did you do about that? How, you know, and and so mm-hmm. that kind of exchange can be really important. But also on a, on a policy, you know, perspective, it's like what what are the policies you need to support? Are there policies that constrain you? And okay, and so well, let's ta- let's stop with that. Then. Okay. What the heck is policy? You know, I really think that we hear this word a lot, we read it a lot, and I think many many of us don't even. And you've used the, the term instrument. Yes. So are policy and instruments coming out of the UN, I guess, the same thing. What is policy? And and 
What does it mean that you're a policy person? Yeah, policy, I mean, there are lots of ways sort of defined. There are laws, there are regulations, there are guidelines, there are declarations. You know, and and also it depends on your national system, what how, how each one th- thing is defined. And then it, it, globally, we'll have what we call soft law because there's no enforcement mechanism or it's not, it's, it's, it's stated as not legally binding. And then there are treaties that are legally binding but have no enforcement mechanisms. <laughs> so right. we have trade rules which are legally binding and they have enforcement mechanisms. So there's not supposed to be a hierarchy of international law, but there is because if you have an enforcement mechanism, you're, you know, and it's especially if you have an economic enforcement mechanism, it, you know, it's just going to happen versus, oh, I'm sorry, we didn't do this and there's no recourse. Um, so, so yeah, I use instrument as a very broad term. Instrument could include a guideline, it could include a treaty, it could you know, include a law. Um, but right now, I mean, the, the, if we really look at it, policy, whether it's law or, and mostly I think these things would be laws and regulations, um, they, they, they actually have a huge impact on what we grow, how we grow it, who grows it. And if we don't unpack that, you know, then then we, we you can have lots of people doing really cool things, but sort of systemic change won't happen because you have pressures you know, that are larger that are affecting sort of more more holistically what we what we I mean the rise of industrial agriculture has been pretty rapid again as I was saying it's yeah. like we've been doing agriculture for twelve thousand years this is a blip but it's in in terms of time it's not a blip in terms of impact right I mean we have a horrible problem with. You know, the global burden of disease now for the first time is related to what we eat. It's not infectious diseases. We are eating ourselves sick. That's happened just in the last, you know, that flip happened in, I think, 2017. Yeah, so the global burden of disease, I mean, people, our, our health, you know, and our lack thereof is now primarily diet related. So we're literally eating ourselves sick. So prior, to, I, I'm not sure if the tipping was, but it was about 2017. Uh-huh. So pri- and we were stepping towards that all along. But p- before that, it was things like infectious diseases and malaria. And, but now we're literally growing and eating ourselves sick. So we have non-communicable diseases, heart disease, diabetes. These are the things that are, you know, killing us. And this is correlated significantly, if not caused, with um, the, the high load of, of processed foods. Yes, it's because of the industrial agricultural system that emerged after World War II. We used to depend on lots of, you know, our diets were very diverse and relied on lots of different kinds of livestock, lots of different kinds of plants, and that was slowly whittled away. Till now we have probably about 12 plant species that we we rely on, but 50% of our diet actually comes from from three grains, three staple grains, rice and wheat and uh, soy. And we in the United States heavily subsidized those. And in the past, prior to the early 1990s, we had a global, you know, we've always been trading, but we kept food, we kept agricultural products out of that trading system. They became formally part of the trading system when the World Trade Organization was established. And so we, as the United States and Europe, but particularly the United States, were an agricultural powerhouse. But for certain, you know, these three crops, which we want to export, and we subsidize them, so they're very cheap. And we brought... So corn and soy... And wheat. And wheat, okay. Or is it corn and soy and rice? No, corn and wheat and rice. Corn, wheat, and rice. Oh, so it's not soy? No, okay. in the United States. So Okay. And so 50% of our, our diets now depend on those crops, which is incredibly unhealthy. So, you know... I, because it's so lacking in diversity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the best... 
way to be healthy is to have a diverse diet. And, you know, you can go to a grocery store and see 50 kinds of cereal. I always call that pseudo diversity because they're all made from the same stuff. You know, yeah, 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 it's not right. Right. Yeah. Well, look, I eat all these different yeah, cereals. I eat a lot of right. different cereals. You know, <laughs> yeah, and look good. at my granola bar. We threw some powdered vitamins on top of it. You know, so right, I'm right, eating healthy right. now. But yeah. the problem with you know having the agreement on agriculture, it it made you know these grains food a commodity as opposed to a human right. And so once it became a commodity, it's it's all about they want to create a free and fair trading system as if that is a way to food security. But it's not a way. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about nutrient dense. It doesn't talk about those things. It's literally just about production and calories. And so we brought, if you wanted to be part of the World Trade Organization, you have to sign all the agreements. So developing countries had to sign the agreement on agriculture and free trade, which is anything but free. Those countries not, aren't allowed to provide the kinds of subsidies and supports, whereas we were grandfathered in. So mm. either whether it was sort of regional trade agreements or the World Trade Organization, huge displacement of smallholder farmers who cannot compete with under artificially underpriced products. So essentially, you are saying that because of this large scale and then narrowed focus in the name of commodifying and in the name of a profit, um, relative to our food production, we have lost biodiverse soils, biodiverse products that we eat in our food, and, and, and we have lost the people who know how to do that best. Have we actually lost them, or are they still kind of going along within this market system? I think there, a lot has been lost, but I think a lot is there, um, and a lot of it can be regained. Um, but some things are lost. They're you know, the same way you see indigenous languages. Some of them are lost. Yeah, can be. And and so I, you know, I have to presume there's indigenous and traditional knowledge that has been lost. Um, and that's why it's so important that we not continue on this trajectory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, because these things are, as we were discussing before, these things are just, you know, passed from generation to generation. And that doesn't mean we can't relearn and we can't, you know, but why would you want to, you know, lose valuable knowledge that is really important, you know, to uh, sustainable agricultural production, to diverse healthy diets, to being able to be resilient to climate change. Why would you, you know? So, right. and also if you're if you're struggling with, you know, malnutrition, you're going to be more susceptible to things like pandemics. You know? For sure, for sure. Yeah. So, given that most of our listeners don't have access to influencing policy. And I mean, I really appreciate this opportunity because I think that that your most people don't have any real clear concept at all of what policymakers do and what global food policy could even mean. So this is helpful for people to get a sense of what that means. Where you sit as a policymaker, what kind of advice or guidance do you have for the listeners? Well, I think that, you know, we all are connected in wanting to, you know, be, be healthy people. And particularly if you're in a, in, a, in a privileged position that your diet may be more diverse than your grandparents because you have the, the money and the ability to get things out of season. One might argue you should eat more locally and eat in the season. Um, but to, to, to be able to, to recognize the privilege that you have is one thing, but also to see how you are part of the system. Because 
I, I think you're wrong that we can't influence policy. I think we have to influence policy. So, people, so how does that happen? How I think it's again, it's about you know knowing what is going on. So knowing what our trade positions are and making sure your representative is you know fighting for something different than you know what is often the American position in trade negotiations or the American position at the World Committee on Food Security. So what is the position that is that that I can listen for that any of the our listeners can listen for in what do we want to have our representatives taking forward because even trade position can be a little elusive. No, and I and 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 to be honest, the whole system is set up to make it difficult for civil society to engage in trade negotiations. So a lot of it is done in secret, and there are corporate interests that do get access to texts that citizens don't. But there, you know, I think there are a lot of civil society and social movements that are very active, and it's I think following those you know, those those groups, I, I think, can be very important. But it's also in other spaces in, in so the, you know, the Food and Agriculture Organization, or when the World Committee on Food Security is negotiating principles on agroecology to, again, know what our position is, and to say, this is what we want to see there. And, and, and to, you know, to be engaged with your representative around those things, and, and to engage with your federal government, to reach out to the State Department. Say this is this is what I'd like to to see. Um, I'm concerned about this. Uh, so yeah, I I think it's and and also any way that you you know if you are engaged with folks that are working in this area, how can you help amplify their vo- voices? Are you know, are there ways to advocate, you know, for those people to be represented and and heard themselves, not through your voice, but from local farmers, from local small scale farmers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I do know mm-hmm. that you make the argument that ultimately um, local action and consumer choices can't transform the food system, that the things have to be changed at the macro level. And so I, that makes sense to me on the one hand. On the other hand, when given a choice, go to the farmer's market? Oh, absolutely. And I never want to minimize the importance of local action. And, and community-supported agriculture? Right. But also, uh, you know, we, we have had a trend of moving away from uh, government support and away from the government as a provider of goods and services to those in need. And we've, you know, since the end of the Cold War, there's been sort of an enchant, what we call market enchantment. The market should do everything. And, and a denigration of, of what government can and should do. And so even that kind of shift is important. We need to support accountable democratic governance. And that does, that's at all levels. So by all means, go to your farmer's market. By all means, you know, support your, your local farmer. And you know, again, those are experiences that could be shared nationally. This is what worked in my community. And I, I really love my CSA and the box that I get every week, but I really think we ought to have some public procurement policies that are more stable. And so my farmers, the farmers that I get my box from every week, I know that a public school is using public money to feed the children there. This hospital, which is a publicly funded hospital, is procuring, you know, local diverse, you know, products from local farmers. They get guaranteed an income healthier diets for, for the people in these institutions. So it's looking for those kinds of policies and saying, I want that. So it's not just it's not just you individually, which I absolutely applaud. And I think we need to, our individual choices matter, but we need to connect with each other. I see. To, 
to, to have a larger impact. And I think we not only need to connect around food systems, we need to connect with others who are concerned about similar things, but in different areas. So if you're worried about corporate concentration, well, why don't we talk to the people who are worried about that on technology platforms? If you're worried about fossil fuels and energy, well, low, artificially low fossil fuels, that is part of what drives industrial agriculture. So let's get together. Mm -hmm. Let's see how we advocate together. Because mm -hmm. I think the only way we're going to make systemic change is where we find common interest with people that we don't know. Oh, you care about cor co you know, corporate concentration. How do we work together to get this change? How do we get the use of antitrust law again? And I think if we don't figure out more creative alliances, you know, that, 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 that'll be a problem. So again, not that your individual choices don't matter, but ooh, who else should you be talking to if, if you... So it's both and. Both and, absolutely. Okay, and so I know we're right here at the end of our time, and I wonder if there's any last thing you would say that is just your biggest heart's desire. Like, what do you want help with, or what do you really want to see happen? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I, I think, that particularly, you know, in these times where we're seeing so much polarization, my hope is that we find ways to celebrate diversity and be like, like your podcast. How does it look from here? Be really curious about how it looks from somewhere else. But then also in that conversation, figure out what we have in common. What do we have in common? What do we share as I celebrate how you're different and how the challenges you're facing are different, the opportunities you're facing are different. What do we have in common? How can we work together to make the world a better place, to make our food systems more sustainable so we can feed ourselves in an uncertain future? That to me is, is the hope and, and the possibility. Yeah, that sounds like a, a perfect, uh, I don't like agroecology is actually a metaphor for what you just said. Yeah. It's like the whole of ecology pulls together mm -hmm. to make yeah. the best products, the, big, the best stuff. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, that's why your full ecology, the whole movement and principles are just fantastic. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. No, I really appreciate them. Great. Well, I just am so grateful to have this opportunity to speak with you and that, that you um, have the time and interest to, to help translate the magnificent work that you and your colleagues do. So the, the policy people support in giant ways, even though they're far, far away from them, the your favorite farmer. Exactly, wherever they are, yeah. in your backyard or somebody else's. Right. <laughs> or maybe they're you. <laughs> maybe they're you. <laughs> well, thank you, Susan. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Wonderful talking with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. about Susan Bragdon and her work by visiting Seeds for All at www.seedsforall.org. Today, we spoke of Susan's recent article in the American University International Law Review. Its title is Global Legal Constraints, How the International System Fails Small-Scale Farmers and Agricultural Biodiversity, Harming Human and Planetary Health, and what to do about it. We're including a link in the show notes in case you want to check it out. You can also inform yourself more about global food security policy and trade law by spending some time on the Seeds for Change website. During our conversation, 
We also referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson, and available in bookstores everywhere. And now, before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know who would enjoy How It Looks From Another Perspective. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe LaVisca, music by Cedar Mathers Wynn and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.